Let's pause once again and bow our hearts and minds to the Lord in prayer. Father, your goodness, your greatness, your wondrous faithfulness, all these things have already been evidenced amongst us this morning in worship. And we pray, Lord, as we open your word now together, that the same would be true, that you would show us by word and spirit your grace, your love for us, your goodness toward us, your faithful safekeeping of us. Lord, be richly powerful and present during this time, we pray, and leave us not unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 2018, there was a lab study done in the U.S. on a widely available ginkgo biloba supplement. The manufacturer of this particular supplement claimed that when taken, the pills would improve your cognition and would help to maintain your mental alertness. But the big problem they found when they did the lab tests on these particular supplements, these capsules, was that there was no trace of ginkgo biloba in them whatsoever. And not only that, these capsules also contained what the lab identified as unknown substitute ingredients that at least potentially could be very harmful to anyone who ingested them. So talk about a useless and potentially harmful dietary supplement. The Colossian Christians were being approached by salesmen who were attempting to sell them useless supplements. These salesmen were claiming that to be in Christ, it, it's all well and good, but if you really want to be close to God and know his presence, if you want to know that God has full approval of you, then it is necessary for you to supplement your being in Christ with a variety of practices and the observance of certain regulations. Your performance of these regulations and practices needed to measure up if you would experience the full measure of God. That's what they were selling. Now, in verse 8 of this second chapter of Colossians, Paul has already talked to us about the danger of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, a good way to view our passage this morning, verses 16 through 23 of Colossians 2, a good way to, to view it is that it's a sort of unpacking of or a detailing of that empty deceit that was described in verse 8. 
that the salesmen were trying to sell the Colossian Christians. So come with me then to our text for this morning. Paul says, we're gonna do another deep dive here. Paul says in verse 16, therefore, and as good Bible scholars, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, in other words, because of what I've said in verses six through 15, about Christ being your everything, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment on you. The salesmen, or more accurately, the the false teachers whose message had come into the ears of the Colossians, they had shown themselves to be judgy types. I think judgy is now a word in the dictionary. They'd shown themselves to be judgy types, judging the holiness and the piety of others around them by whether those people observed rules that were based in the Old Testament food and drink laws and the festival new moon and Sabbath regulations. Paul says here to the Colossians, don't give any credence to their judgments. Don't let the judgments of these people get into your head. Don't be shaken by their judgy ways. Keep the main thing, the main thing, Colossians. Keep the main thing, the main thing, Snowdenites. And what is the main thing? Well, the main thing in terms of your acceptance with God does not have to do with whether you refrain from eating this or drinking that or whether you observe a day or don't. The main thing in terms of your acceptance with God is whether you are in Christ. Mark it. Are you in Christ? That's the main thing. The living Christ is your all. No useless supplements are required. You're doing this, you're not doing that, you're abstaining from this, but partaking in that. None of that is what, you ma- is what makes you clean and what makes you acceptable in the sight of God. The question is, are you in Christ whose blood cleanses you? Are you in Christ who is your new environment? Are you in Christ who is your righteousness? Works, deeds, doing, activity flow out of your grace-given relationship with him. They are not the path into that relationship. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, 
or with, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, verse 17. These, these various Old Testament-based observances and regulations just mentioned in verse 16 that by this time when Paul was writing had been completely distorted by human teaching. These are a shadow, notice, of the things to come. They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. You know, friends, when sunlight hits your body and can't pass through your body, then the opposite side of your body casts a darkened shadow on the ground, right? Basic science. Well, in this verse, the shadow on the ground is the Old Testament laws that Paul mentioned in verse 16, and the solid body, the substance, in fact, the word in Greek is body, the solid body, the substance is Christ. As Greg Beale has put it, Christ Jesus has brought these Old Testament laws of verse 16 to material fulfillment. He is the substance to which the laws pointed. Close quote. Yes. The Old Testament laws that Paul alludes to in verse 16 were never intended to be a sort of endpoint. Those laws expected something greater. They anticipated a culminating fulfillment, and that fulfillment is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reality, friends, who casts his shadow back into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament shadows point forward to Christ. Are you in Christ this morning. That is the important matter. Now, verse 18, I know we're having lunch later, but verse 18 happens to be one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. I hope it doesn't give us indigestion. One of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament in terms of translation from the original Greek text into other languages, English included. Paul begins the verse by saying something, I think, quite similar to what he said in verse 16 when he said, let no one pass judgment on you. Here in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. Now, the word disqualify in the original Greek text, carries the sense of being robbed of a prize. Being robbed of a prize. We can think of the false teachers, one way to think of them, we can think of these people who had been influencing the Colossian Christians as sort of like baseball umpires who rule, strike three, to disqualify a hitter from remaining there on the plate. The words and the actions of the false teachers threaten to spiritually disqualify the Colossians, to push them off home plate. And Paul says to the Colossians, 
don't give credence to their judgments. And then he details the place, listen, the place from which this judgment, this disqualification was coming from, the place it was coming from. What was behind these false teachers and their disqualification of others around them? What was it that made these people judge the Colossian Christians as failures? What was making them judge the Colossian Christians as being second rate? Paul says, that these false teachers had been insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, just to give you an idea of the difficulty in translating this part from the original Greek, I want to give you four samples of how English Bibles have translated this phrase. Okay, so we have our ESV version at the top that we're working with this morning, that we work with here at Snowden on Sundays. But then notice the King James Version. In a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. And then we have the 1995 New American Standard Bible. By delighting in self-abasement, and the worship of angels. And then finally, the New International Version, in false humility, and the worship of angels. Okay, so having looked at those four versions, maybe you're just as confused as I was as to what the accurate, most accurate translation here is. The translation committees, and they are committees, the translation committees in each of these cases have gone in quite different directions with their conclusions. So which is it? Well, I think it may help us to understand, listen, that in Paul's time, in the time of the Colossians, there were Jewish mystics who practiced fasting in the hope of gaining a vision of angels. And their fasting was a form of asceticism. Asceticism can be defined as practicing self-denial or practicing pronounced self-discipline, like fasting, in order to gain enhanced spiritual vision. So the way the ESV has translated here makes sense, actually. These false teachers were insisting that others practice asceticism like they did, most likely fasting, in order to do what? In order to gain spiritual sight of angels. But then, looking closely at the Greek term in question here, I also think that we need to include the idea that the NIV has. This idea of false humility. So then the idea would be this, that the false teachers, as they practice their fasting, as they practice their asceticism to gain sight of angels, listen, they wanted to project to onlookers a picture of great spiritual humility. 
look at us, see how we deprive ourselves of food and water and how we suffer. Look at our humility before God that we demonstrate as we seek a higher spiritual vision. Hey, Colossians, don't you want to be like us? A projection of humility. But this was a false humility. In fact, what it really was, friends, was self-exaltation and pride. Now, in his commentary on Colossians, John Woodhouse wonders if you and I have ever encountered a situation where we look at someone's obvious self-denial, spiritual self-denial, and we feel hopelessly inferior. This super spiritual person in front of us makes us feel as if we are second-rate Christians at best. Now, of course, there may be some value for us in such a situation, right, in terms of moving us from spiritual lethargy, if we are in that condition, to a more forward gear in our walk with God. But the thing is that it's all too easy for us to focus too much on that other person's spiritual greatness and forget the main thing which is being in Christ. Sure, our spiritual attainments and our spiritual experiences might not compare to that other person, but the question is, am I in Christ? Because that's what really matters. That's what really matters. As long as I'm in Christ, I will not be disqualified. My friend, are you in Christ? this morning? Are you in him? Are you walking in union, in a vital union with the crucified and risen and soon coming Jesus Christ? That's the question. Notice here that these false teachers who were influencing the Colossians were angel-centered in their worship instead of being Christ-centered. Huge red flag. And they were going on, says Paul, going on in detail about visions. Again, the Greek in this part of the verse, it's very, very difficult. Some of the most difficult Greek in the New Testament as far as bringing it over into legible English. But in basic terms... This phrase here, going on in detail about visions, this likely has to do, as scholars have looked at this, this likely has to do with how these false, false teachers claimed to have entered into the heavenly temple, into the innermost sanctuary of the heavenly temple through their fasting and through their visions. And the effect the effect of their going on about this stuff was really to create what? To create a hierarchy. We are the spiritually superior. You are the spiritually inferior because you haven't had the visions that we have had. 
So there was a sort of first-class believer versus second-class believer structure that was being encouraged by these false teachers, which is always a very, very dangerous, and I would add, ungodly thing wherever it happens. The false teachers here, friends, they may claim to have entered into a visionary experience of a heavenly temple, but as for you, says Paul, as for you, the only temple that matters for you is Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily and whether you are in him. Are you in Christ. Paul continues here by observing that these false teachers, notice this, they are puffed up. That is, they are clearly arrogant and they are proud for all their supposed false humility. They try to project an air of humility, but in fact, we experience them as arrogant and puffed up, Paul says, essentially. And then to use Woodhouse's word here, Paul says something absolutely shattering about their arrogance. Paul says that their arrogance, notice, their puffed up posture is without reason. But shouldn't they be puffed up since supposedly they've had these angelic encounters? No. That's no reason to be puffed up. Well, shouldn't they be proud of their amazing visions into the heavenly temple? No. That's also no reason to be arrogant or to feel superior to others. Well, what about the great lengths that they went to in their fasting? No, says Paul. That's also no reason for their puffed up posture either. Indeed, they have no reason to be puffed up as they are. There is no basis. It is without reason. Where the puffed upedness, if I can coin a word, where the puffed upedness is coming from, says Paul, and notice this, friends, equally shattering, where this puffed up, arrogant pride is coming from, Paul says, is not from any spiritual reason or any divine reason at all. The arrogant pride of these people is springing up directly from their sensuous minds. It's their flesh. It is nothing spiritual whatsoever that is feeding their overconfidence and their pride despite their desperate attempt to appear spiritually superior to others. This is all of the flesh. Wow. Wow. Oh, my friends, how you and I need to be so careful not to read a text like this as if we are somehow immune from the puffed up condition of these teachers. 
as I always say, if we read Scripture and always put the bad guys who are described there at arm's length, as if they're all, it's always that other guy and it never could be us, then the joke's on us. And so may the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, help us and convict us where necessary and be merciful to us and in His great great grace continue to change and transform each and every one of us who are spiritual wrecks into the image of his son are you in christ that's the main thing the false teachers were puffed up by their sensuous minds and paul says in verse 19 very tragically, they were not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul has already said back in verse 8 that the ideas of these false teachers were not according to Christ, and now he doubles down and says that these people were not holding fast to the head who is Christ. Their grip had slipped, if it ever was there. The head, the, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, he is there for the grasping. Yes? Are you in Christ Jesus? He is there for the grasping. He is the one with all authority and we must cling tenaciously to Him and walk in Him, to quote verse 6 once again. But these teachers, they were much more interested in honoring themselves. And so they were disregarding, they were disrespecting not only the head, but the entire body of Christ that is organically connected to the head. In verses 20 through 22, Paul says to the church, if, or as the TNIV has it, since, since with Christ you died, since with Christ you died, died if you are in Christ. Did you know that you have died? Since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, because remember you died, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to what? Regulations. And then Paul gives examples. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to what? Human precepts and teachings. We could summarize these verses this way. Paul wonders out loud here why these precious Colossian believers in Jesus Christ, why they would want to gravitate back to the shadows, back to the divisive regulations and the powers of the old world, 
when the new has dawned in Jesus Christ. All those old regulations concerning diet that separated Israel from the nations, that separated pure from impure, that separated Jew from Gentile, all of those things along with depending on how we interpret that phrase, elemental spirits of the world, along with all the evil powers who delighted and still delight to enhance the separation and the fracturing of people from one another. All of that has been done away with in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is now the one who Greg Beale has called, quote, the only, only foundational pillar or element in the new world. Jesus is the only foundational pillar of the new world. Paul wonders why the Colossians would be attracted to go backwards to the shadows when the substance and light of the world has come in the person of Jesus Christ. My friends, the church is all about this person named Jesus this beautiful, conquering, crucified, and risen king. Yes? He is what solves the riddle of human life. Why would you want to remain stuck on all these Old Testament codes and regulations and rules that Paul has outlined in this passage which by Paul's time, as we said, which by Paul's time had been hopelessly, have you ever seen the bottom of a pier with all the barnacles around the post? These laws had been hopelessly barnacled up with all sorts of human precepts and human teachings. Why would you want to obsess there thinking that the rules are the path to the meaning of life? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch. I think John Woodhouse puts it very well when he acknowledges, first of all, he acknowledges, and it's important, that of course rules do play a role in our faith, yes? Of course they do, for sure they do. There are definitely rules and commands, and I would say demands on human behavior that apply for those who are in Christ. We know that. But, he says, the nature and power, the nature and power of rules must be put in perspective. He says, quote, rules don't change people. Rules don't change hearts. Rules can't curb the flesh. That is what Christ's death was about. And then he asks this question. Did you or did you not die with Christ? If the answer is yes, then the power that is to shape your life is not rules. My friends, this is so relevant to us in Jesus. This is so relevant to us. It's relevant because we human beings, we love 
to manufacture rules and regulations. I'm just going to come out and say it. I mean, look at the province we live in, in terms of rules and regulations, and a stacking up of more rules and regulations. We love to manufacture rules and regulations either overtly or covertly that enable us to do what? To compare ourselves with others and judge others. We contrast our keeping of our manufactured laws with the breaking of those same laws by others around us. We are what Brian Chappell has called, and I love his phrase, factories of legislation. We are factories of legislation, but the thing is that most of us, most of the time, we don't even see that we are. How many tragic, tragic tensions and fractures have happened in churches because somebody insists on their rule that women must not wear makeup or jewelry. I know I'm talking to you now. <laughs> How much disunity in the body has been caused by a faction of members who insist that their regulation, that guitars and electricity must be banned from the sanctuary, that this rule must apply at all times. How much trouble has arisen in Christ church because someone who insists on total abstention from alcohol finds out that Deaconess Matilda had a glass of Chardonnay at a dinner on Tuesday night. And so on and so on. I, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, and you should do as I do. My friends, if, if, if mandates like that become more important than mandates that actually can be established from the Bible, which none of those can successfully, then we are in real trouble. As Chapel has put it, we must not dare put ourselves in the role of lawgiver because that is God's role alone. Paul finishes up this section by saying in verse 23, these, and in the context here, the word these refers to the rules and regulations of self-denial that the false teachers were promoting. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Sure they do. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting what? Ooh, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of how much value? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice here the hollowness, the hollowness 
of what these false teachers were promoting. Paul says it has no value. He says it is a do-it-yourself sort of religion that is ultimately void and empty and, in fact, idolatrous. And this stuff has no power to curb the indulgence of the flesh. Notice here that Paul mentions, notice, the severity to the body. And then he mentions no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a Bible uh, commentator from the 19th century named John Eady, who grave, he, he gave great commentary on this. I want to read you this full quote. Eady said, the body might be reduced, but the evil bias might remain unchecked. A man might whip and fast himself into a walking skeleton, and yet the spirit within him might have all its lusts unconquered. For all it had lost was only the ability to gratify them. If you're a walking skeleton, you've lost that ability. He says, to place a fetter, chains, on a robber's hand will not cure him of covetousness, though it may disqualify him from actual theft. To seal up a, a swearer's mouth, put a piece of tape over it, will not pluck profanity out of his heart though it may for a time prevent him from taking God's name in vain. Edie finished this quote by saying, to lacerate the flesh almost to suicide merely incapacitates it for indulgence, but does not extirpate sinful desire. Its air of superior sanctity is only pride in disguise. It has but a show of wisdom and is not. And so here's the question, friends, that rings through this morning's text. Are you in Christ? That's the thing. It is his power, his wisdom, his help, his healing, his overcoming, his provision, his everything that you need. The false teachers infecting the church at Colossae were all about measuring personal zeal and personal spiritual activity. They were measuring this in themselves, measuring it in others. They wanted to set the standard and they wanted to be the standard. They were all about self-ability, self-confidence, self-exaltation, even as they failed to grasp the head of the church, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, friends, who fulfilled the law in our place. It is Jesus who set us lawbreakers free from the curse of the law by his death on the cross. Are you in Christ, my friend? Your redemption, your salvation does not come, will never come by self-effort. Will never come by self-denial or self-anything. It comes only from Christ 
and his sacrifice on the cross. Your righteousness as you stand before the holy God does not come from your efforts and your works and your deeds. It comes only from Christ. It is his righteousness that must clothe you. Are you in Christ? With Martin Luther, I counsel you in closing to despair of your own ability so that you are prepared to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word comes along and it flips our world upside down. It flips our economy, our wiring upside down. Lord, you have come with this word of grace. And in your power, by your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would get under our skin redemptively with this word. Bring us from A to B to C, from glory to glory, by the power of your Holy Spirit this week. In Jesus' name, amen.